We love you, Lord Christ. We recognize that you are here. You are with us. You are not far away. You have not rejected us, but you have made your home with us. Give us the grace, Jesus, by the power of your Holy Spirit to receive you with open hearts, to throw our lives open to you, that you might come in and rule and reign. Because, Lord, wherever you're king, there is salvation. We welcome you now, Jesus, and pray in your name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, uh, I didn't know how many people to expect this morning. I thought there might just be three or four of us. Uh, so, well done, you intrepid adventurers getting here and f- facing the, the, the frigid uh, chill out there, whatever. Um, and welcome to you all who are at home as well. Um, really glad we have live stream today. Um, you know, it's funny. I did not remember until the beginning of this second service that today's Valentine's Day. <laughs> like, I even looked at the flowers and thought, those seem significant in some way. And then just went on. Um, but isn't it good to be part of a, uh, a faith that's rooted in grace? <laughs> and the good news, my wife's out of town anyway, so everything's fine. Um, but anyway, uh, it just dawned on me a second ago. So um, happy Valentine's Day, I guess. Well, uh, I want to I begin this morning by asking you to use your imaginations a little bit. Um, it's going to be a little dark at first, but then it's going to uh, get better fast. So imagine, if you will, a situation where someone who you love very much, maybe a child or a best friend, someone who's very, very dear to you, um, things go very badly and they end up in prison, uh, in, in the worst kind of prison. It's really more like slavery than prison. It's a terrible situation. And you, uh, it seems hopeless, it seems like there's nothing that can be done, but you do everything. You move heaven and earth at great personal cost, and somehow you're ultimately able to free them. You're able to get them out of this prison. And there you are. It's the day they're being released. And you're standing on the street, and you see the gates open, and they walk out, and they walk right up to you, and you say, okay, cool, see you later. Is that, what you, is that what you would do? No, of course not. Because you didn't rescue them. You didn't just rescue them from something. You rescued them for something. You didn't just rescue them from the terrible place they were in. You rescued them so that they could enter back into relationships, so that they could live a life. So what would you do? You would take them home. You would, you would revel and you would celebrate having them with you again. You would enjoy their presence and enjoy them in hours. And when they were strong again, when they were healthy again, as they got able, you would help them not just stay in the house with you, but, but to actually go out and live their life and, and pursue passion and, and be a part of meaningful work in the world. Who knows, maybe after coming out of such a dark place, they would want to be a part of helping other people get out of a dark place like that. So if you, if you rescued your loved one, you wouldn't just leave them on the street because you, you didn't just save them from something, you were saving them for something. Well, the exact same thing is true of God. You see, he made us for himself. He made us for relationship with himself. And so when he saves us, he's not just saving us from something. He's not just saving us from death and hell. He's saving us for relationship and responsibility. He's saving us for relationship with himself and responsibility. And we're going to see this all the way through Scripture. But I'm going to touch four places today where we see this is true. 
creation, the book of Exodus, where we've been for the last several months, the Gospels, and then in our own lives. And we're going to move through it really quickly, and I'm going to get you home before the snow piles up, okay? Okay, so relationship and responsibility. In the beginning, God made man and woman. He made them in his image, and he walked with them in the garden. They were made for relationship, and they enjoyed personal relationship with him. But that's not all. You see, God gave them dominion and authority over the earth. He put them in charge. Why did he do that? Not because he needed to delegate authority. He didn't need help. He put them in charge because like a good parent uh, raising a child, he wanted them to mature and grow and, and to become whole people. And so he was including them in his own work. He was making them a part of it. And you could say, I think you could call this combination of relationship and responsibility communion. Because the two things were never meant to be separated. It's like mankind was supposed to be so close to God, to know him so well, that they would become like him. So that his authority and love would flow through them, and everything they touched would become life, and order, and wholeness, and beauty, and light. But all that broke down precisely when humanity decided to tear apart that relationship and that responsibility from that responsibility. They said, we want to be in charge, we want to be the boss, we want power, but we want it apart from you. And so humanity went and tried to be in charge of themselves and the world apart from God, without his life flowing into them and through them. And once they did that, everything they touched became sadness and disorder and death. And so that's the story of the beginning of humanity. Made for relationship with God and responsibility that flows from that relationship, but choosing to abandon the relationship and to hold on tight to the responsibility, which then turns into tyranny. And so things get really dark for a really long time. We're living with the consequences of our own rule of darkness. When we get to the book of Exodus, uh, we find the children of Israel living in slavery in Egypt. And Egypt in this story becomes like, uh, like, like the preeminent, ex preeminent example of what happens when people try to have the authority God has given us apart from them, when we're doing it on our own. Egypt's impressive. They have grand monuments of power, but every bit of it is built on slavery and death. And the people of Israel are suffering under that kind of power, suffering under that kind, the rule of that kind of um, authority run outside of God's, or outside of a relationship with God. So God sweeps in and he rescues the people. Through the Exodus, he takes them out of Egypt. But again, he's not just saving them from slavery. He doesn't just take them, on, get them to the other side of the Red Sea and say, see you later, good luck. No, he takes them to Mount Sinai. And what does he do there? He comes down on the mountain and he gives them the law. Why? to renew relationship and responsibility, to bring them back around to that place that they were made for, for, that, for the things that they were made for in the garden in the beginning. The law was given so that they would know, so that they would be able to live with the holy God in their midst. He's holy, so you've got to be holy. So this is to establish the relationship. But he's also saying, I'm going to make you in this way a nation of priests, so that my love and power and goodness will flow through you to the world so that the world will look at you and know who I am. In other words, mankind was made to be in relationship with me, to dwell in my presence. That's all messed up. But now, 
by living with you, by extending my authority through you, my presence will be known to the world again. That's your job, Israel. To dwell in relationship with me and through that relationship to carry that responsibility of being a nation of priests. In fact, we, we, as you read Exodus, you get into the section where all these descriptions of what the, the tabernacle would be like, this place where God's presence is supposed to be. And if you get into the details, you see that they are basically a callback to Eden because this is the place where uh, the memory of and, and the renewal of God's presence with his people is supposed to be happening. So there's, there's an Eden 2.0 kind of thing beginning to happen here. But before it ever gets started, the fall happens all over again. It's just like Adam and Eve taking the fruit. The people down below, even as God's presence is on the mountaintop, even as they can see his presence, he's with them, reestablishing the relationship. Down below, they're making gods of their own. Gods in their own image. Gods in the image of the same oppressive, broken, removed from God powers they've lived under and under the, the, the slavery to for the last 400 years. They make the same choice that Adam and Eve did to try to have power and freedom apart from God. And the result is the same. Everything they touch turns to sorrow and death and destruction. And so God looks at them and says, um, if you, you, you refuse my presence, um, you, you will be unable to do what I've made you to do. And he says he's going to wipe out his people. But Moses intercedes and God relents. And it's fascinating because nothing changes. Israel doesn't straighten itself out. They don't get themselves right. They don't make amends. But God says, I will be gracious to, I'll, who, to whom I will be gracious. I will have mercy upon who I will have mercy. Basically, God is just kind, and he doesn't destroy them. But he goes even further than that. He continues to give them his presence. He continues to go with them. And so in this moment, we really see the whole pattern for the rest of the Old Testament. It just gets reenacted over and over again. God comes to his people to establish relationship. He chooses to work through them. He's present through the tabernacle, through the temple. He works through the prophets and the kings, putting his spirit on individuals. And whenever he comes, he brings salvation and help. But the people always ultimately reject him. And so trouble continues to come. Things continue to be broken. And there's this promise that God will not allow this to last forever. Somehow, someday, he will rescue his people, ultimately. But it's, there's this tension, because how can that ever happen? How can humanity ever be what they were made to be whenever they refuse God's presence, when they refuse his relationship, when they try to live out of their own power, when, his, when relationship with him is the very thing they were made for in the first place? And that question persists all the way through the Old Testament. Until finally, we get to Jesus and everything changes. When Jesus comes, he comes as fully God and fully man. As God, he brings the presence of God back to humanity in an entirely new and incredible way. Because now he's not just, not, God's not just with his people, he's become one of them. He's put on flesh and blood. And as a human being, in his human nature, uh, what he does is really incredible. He does what Adam and Eve and what Israel could never do. He lives in perfect relationship with God so that God's work flows through him perfectly. That relationship and responsibility piece, we see it done perfectly in Jesus. He does exactly what the Father says, nothing more and nothing less. That's what defines his ministry. 
And so God's power flows through him perfectly. And it takes him to the cross. And on the cross, he dies. And then he's resurrected. He comes back to life. And so he conquers the power of hell and death. And in doing so, he becomes the greater Moses. You see, in the Exodus, the, 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 the salvation that was given by God to his people was from external oppression, from, from powerful people uh, who had turned themselves away from God and were oppressing others. But when they got out to the wilderness and chose those idols, we find out that they needed a deeper saving. They needed to be saved from a slavery that was deeper than the one they experienced in Egypt because it was one that was inside of them. And so Jesus accomplishes this greater exodus. He frees his people from their sins, from their brokenness, from the things inside of them that keep them from being able to experience the very things they were made for, relationship with God and being vessels through whom his power and love flow into the world. Jesus accomplishes that. And if Jesus accomplishes a greater exodus on the cross, he wasn't just saving us from something, from sin and death, saving us for something. And we see that in Pentecost. If the cross is the greater exodus, then Pentecost is the greater Sinai. What happened at Sinai? God came down in fire and with word to establish a relationship with his people so they could be in relationship with him again and so that his power would flow through them, that they could be a nation of priests to the world. What happens at Pentecost? The fire of God, now with sin removed as a problem, falls not on a mountaintop far away, but on the very bodies of the church. It falls on the people themselves. His presence fills them, renewing relationship with them. And we see the church go and do what, they were, what humanity has always been made to do. They become a conduit of God's love and presence in the world. So that the Apostle Paul could say, you are the temple of the living God. You are the place where God has made his presence visible in the world again. And his power is flowing through you. This is the place where humanity has been renewed. Where once again you were living for what you were made for. Relationship with God and the responsibility that flows from that. Set right because a connection has been made again. Not because of anything you've done. Not because suddenly you're good enough. You're no different than Israel. You're no different than Adam and Eve. But because of God's incredible grace. Because of his mercy once and for all. All that brokenness has been removed. It's out of the way. You have been freed. Now live in that freedom. Friends, that's our story. That's who we are. We are the temple of the living God. There's no question of whether or not he will give his presence to us. He already has. He is with us. The only question is whether or not we'll receive it. So go back to the story that I offered at the beginning um, of this picture of... Um, <laughs> Of, of, of a friend being uh, taken out of jail. When God saves us, when he rescues us from death and hell, from our sin, um, he, doesn't, he doesn't just leave us standing on the street. He invites us into a new kind of life. But, but all too often, we have misunderstood what's happening. For generations, Christians have asked the question, well, what do I have to do to be saved? Like, well, what if I don't follow you? And, and there's always been this tension between faith and works. It's like, well, do I have to do good stuff to be in your favor and to continue to be your child? And it's like, you, you, you've missed the point entirely, body, when, when, when we think that way. It's, it's like God has freed us from prison. Christ has freed us from prison. 
And then it's like we went back home and locked ourselves in the room and refused to come out. (laughs) It's like we've been liberated, but refusing to follow Christ, refusing to be in relationship with him, is like choosing to re-imprison ourselves. Because we haven't just been saved for something, we've been saved for something. We've been made for something. Made for an abundant life of relationship with Jesus and of his life flowing through us. The New Testament talks about it. It says that Jesus uh, is living water. It says that he is the vine, we are the branches. See, Moses in Exodus 33 understood, even back then, what was going on. Because after Israel had refused God, and God said he was going to destroy them, and Moses said, please don't, God said, okay, I won't destroy the people, but I'm not going with them either. Because they're not like me. They're not, in my image, they're not, cre- they're not connecting to me. Instead, they're stiff-necked. What does stiff-necked mean? He's saying they've become like the very idols they're serving, these statues made out of metal and wood and stone. They're like that. They're like the dead things that they serve, not like me. And if my spirit goes with them, they'll be consumed. And so Moses doesn't say, well, please come with us because he's afraid things won't work out if God doesn't come. It's more dangerous for God to come with them. But he says, don't send us if you won't go with us. Because he understood even then that apart from God's presence with his people, His people can never be who they were made to be. They can never live the life that was intended for them. And the same is true for us. We have been saved not just from hell. We have been saved for a life in Christ. But if we skip the in Christ part and just try to go do things on our own, we'll get exactly what they got in the Old Testament. We'll get ashes. We just turn ourselves into tiny pharaohs who are gathering up whatever power we can get our hands on to build tiny monuments for ourselves. But we've been offered something so much greater than that. We've been offered relationship with the living God. And when we walk in that, we are reshaped. Our whole lives, little by little, are shaped in his image instead of in the dead image of the other things that we would follow with our lives. And as we are reformed in his image, his life and love flows through us to everything we touch. And so our broken relationships with other people, our broken relationship with our work, our broken relationship with the whole world, even our broken relationship with ourselves, all come back to this one place. It begins with the fact that we were made for relationship with the Father. And the door is open, and he says, come in, and when we go in, and that relationship is alive, then life flows through it, living water, he is the vine, we are the branches, And real fruit is produced. Fruit that remains. We try to do it apart from him. We just produce ashes. So friends, and and I think in the history of evangelical Christianity, our branch of the church largely, um, there's been such an emphasis on being saved that we've often forgotten this. We've forgotten what we were saved for. We've forgotten that we are being invited into a life on the other side of that rescue a life in which God makes us, he makes his home with us, and he begins to bring salvation to other people through us. That's what we see in the gospel reading today, the call uh, to go and make disciples of all nations, and I will be with you until the end of the age. You're saying the exact same thing. I'm going to be with you. What do I want you to do? Be my disciple. Know me. Live in communion with me. Be shaped like me by living with me, and then let that life flow out of you to other people and invite them into that same rescue, into that same wholeness, because it's what I made them for too. So friends, 
in a moment, we turn to the table, we turn to communion. Every time we do this, it's an invitation to come laying some things down and to receive things from the Lord. The invitation today is to look at your own life and to see the places where you've gone to God merely for rescue and miss the fact that he was rescuing you for something, for relationship with himself. It's to take an honest look at the places where you're trying to live out of your own power and authority and not out of the life that flows from God, whether that's in your work or your relationships or or whatever. We all do it in different places and, and probably in a lot of places. But to then recognize that there's no question of God offering his life to you. He already has. And in communion, we believe that God is making his presence real to us through the bread and the wine. And so we come to receive that presence, to say yes, and to let that begin to be a wellspring of life in us that overflows. So Lord Jesus Christ, we submit ourselves to you. We confess that on our own, we're no different than Adam and Eve. We're no different than the Israelites making idols at the foot of Mount Sinai. We want to do it ourselves. We want to be in control. But Jesus, we confess that when we try to be in control, when we try to do it our way, it just leads to death. We pray, Lord, that by your grace, you would give us a desire and give us the ability to, to, to want to return to relationship with you and to, and to lean into relationship with you. And that as we know you more, as we lean into you, that you would fill us up that we would be changed more into your image so that your church, our, the, us, not this building, but us together, this community, Lord, would look so much like you that it really would be the temple of the living God, that it would be a place where the world can look and say, that's, that's where the Lord is. That This would be a place, that our community would be a place where people can come and meet with you and find your grace and your healing and your restoration. We pray it with hope and thanksgiving, Jesus. Amen.